You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Good morning. It's wonderful to see so many guests with us this morning, especially uh, braving all of the rain. We're grateful that you're here with us as uh, we gather together to worship our covenant God who's loved us so well. We want to celebrate that love today as uh, many children of our church are finding their way to uh, children's church in their time. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you're our guest this morning, you'll find that we are uh, in the, near the beginning of a sermon series through the book of Amos in the Old Testament. If you're using a Black Pew Bible, you can find that in the Old Testament, of course, on page 651, 651. Uh, our purpose as we are preaching uh, verse by verse through this book of the Bible at this time is that just as the title of the series states, we want to be gripped by God like Amos like God's chosen people, Israel, and like the rest of God's people, all of us together as his covenant people who have come to God by faith in Christ, we want to be gripped by God. And so it's, it's our delight to continue working our way through this book as we come to the beginning of Amos chapter 3. Now, as I think about Christianity and I think about our church, it often occurs to me that I think there isn't anything crazier in all the world than Christianity. If you take a moment and you think about the kinds of things that we have been persuaded of, the kinds of things that we believe in and that we believe about God and his world, to anyone else who's not been persuaded, they seem incredulous. They seem absolutely crazy. And I'm okay with that because uh, I have found that the truths of Scripture are sufficient and they are life-giving. And we're finding that, I, I hope, every week, day in and day out as we continue to walk together as the church. And then sometimes we come <clears throat> to a passage of Scripture where the craziness of Christianity bubbles up even more than normal. And I think this is one of those mornings as we come to this particular text in Amos chapter 3, just the first eight verses. And so it is my delight to tell you something crazy today. And it's simply this. I want to tell you this morning, what is the most dangerous doctrine in all the world? I believe that the most dangerous doctrine in all the world, especially according to this passage of Scripture is one that you might not expect it to be. You might think that it would be one that's highly controversial or that is deep and hidden somewhere in the, in the depths of the pages of Scripture. But in fact, I think the most dangerous doctrine in all the world is one that sits right on the surface, and it is the doctrine of the love of God. Now, you know, that's a, that's a preacher trick when you say the most in the world course, there's no way to know that, but it must be at the top of the list. And it sounds crazy to say that because I think even my, my own heart and my own sensibilities as, as a human being and as a Christian would not think of the love of God as being a dangerous doctrine. I, I think of it as being a very safe doctrine, that, that being in the love of God is perhaps the safest place that you can be. 
and I should put many of us at ease, I think that's also true. I think that the love of God is the safest place that we can be, but in some strange twist of of sovereign truth, it is also the most dangerous place that you can be. Because the love of God, when God calls us to faith in Christ and he brings us into his covenant family, he puts us into the belly of the whale. He puts us into the very center of his love. And that love puts us in a place in which God is determined to work on us. It's so amazing to me to think about the love of God that kind of naturally, I would think that the love of God is the place where where everything goes really smooth and everything is really easy. And God is always really kind of easygoing and and he always just kind of overlooks the things that that I do that may be wrong or, or may be unlike him or offensive. But in fact, if you spend any time with the Lord, if you spend any time in his word, if you spend any time walking with him, you come to know what I've come to know. And that is that the love of God does something incredible in your life. It attracts God's transforming attention to you. He doesn't just overlook you. He doesn't become a pushover. He doesn't back away and kind of let you do your thing. He actually moves into your life and he starts to change things. And in fact, he is so dedicated to that change that he will not spare any expense or any trouble or any pain to bring about his incredible, life-giving, glad-making purposes in your life and mine. And we're going to see a little bit of that this morning in Amos chapter 3. We want to remember as we come to this text, some, another passage that's so helpful to remind us of this truth and we can carry it forward with us to help us make sense of what's going on. It actually comes from the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to just a couple of verses from there. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And here it is. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and cherishes every son whom he receives. It's that doctrine of God's love for us that is so incredible and it is so otherworldly and it is so grounded in this marvelous grace that he has shown to you and me in Christ that it draws him to work on us and to discipline us and to change us. We're going to see a little bit of that this morning as we continue in Amos and we see the way that God's judgment of the surrounding nations suddenly turned to Israel. But, but the context of Israel being those receiving his judgment kind of changed it a little bit because of his covenant promises to them, his judgment upon them for the sins that had become like all of those other nations worked as a kind of discipline in them, uh, an act of love toward them as he worked in their hearts and in their lives. And so we want to notice some things about this this sovereign judgment that he works in, in their lives, and he even continues to work by discipline in our lives as we notice just three truths this morning. Here's the first, if you're taking notes. 
The first is that God's judgment, as we see it in this text, in the nation of Israel, springs from what I was just talking about. It springs from sovereign love. This is so uh, counterintuitive to you and me, most likely, but it does us good to see it and embrace it and to carry it home in our hearts and then forward in our lives together as the church. Listen to just the first two verses of Amos chapter 3. Stunning, stunning truth. If you really look at it and really pay attention, he says, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. Now, verse 2. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your wrongdoing. Now, that sounds really foreign, doesn't it? If there are any parents here and you've disciplined your children before for their wrongdoing, you may have heard them say, the exact opposite of this. I have over and over again. They would get to a certain age and then when discipline came, they got wise and they started to talk back a little bit and argue back and try to come up with some arguments to stop the discipline. It was usually this. In fact, I remember particularly from one of our children who said, stop. You know, if you really love me, you wouldn't spank me. You wouldn't discipline me if you really love me. It's such a picture of how unusual this is for us to embrace the truth of true love, that true love actually gets involved, and we see no more true or truer love than the love of God here. The people of Israel that we're reading about here belonged to the God of Israel for one reason and one reason alone, grace. Because of his sovereign love for them as wrongdoers, as sinners, they were able to come into his covenant kingdom by only one path, and that path is sovereign love. Listen to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's a very good passage for us to memorize and carry with us because it speaks so clearly about the covenant love of the covenant God that we've come to know by faith in Christ. Listen to what it says. The Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you hear that? Did you hear the way that God loved his chosen people? Why did he choose them? He chose them because he loved them. And why did he love them? He loved them. It's a weird answer because he loved them. It's one of the craziest things about Christianity. It's something that, that runs so against the grain of our normal human ways of thinking about love because God actually loves us not because of anything 
we do or anything that we are, but he loves us simply because he loves us. Just like us, Israel did nothing to attract God's favor. In fact, Israel did nothing to keep God's favor. Think about even the father of Israel, Abraham, with whom God made that incredible covenant of grace that we have been brought into, that even Abraham was a pagan. There was nothing that God looked down and saw in Abraham and said, oh, this is my guy. He's like me. He's going to carry out my plans. He's the best person to lead all of these people. He looked down and he saw he's not like me. He's really not the best person to do all of my plans. But instead, he decided that he would choose Abraham. And he brought Abraham forward and he changed Abraham and he set his love on Abraham. Now, that's what we see even here when Amos is talking about the way that God has loved the nation of Israel. Look in verse 2. He says this incredible thing about his love. He says, you only, it's very emphatic language. He's making a really serious point about a particular group of people in the world. He says, you only have I known. Now, depending on the version of the Bible that you're using, or if you look carefully at the original words that are used here, you'll find that that word might be translated in your Bible as chosen. This is where we hear some of the, the incredible, difficult doctrine of God's election because it's here again that we see that God has set his love on the nation of Israel for no doing of their own, but simply because he loves them. He's chosen them. That's why this might read for you, you only have I chosen that word that I'm reading in my version is known, and it means to set his love on you. It's an intimate kind of knowledge. It's not like just knowing the cashier at Kroger or knowing someone down the street. It's really knowing someone. It's knowing someone intimately and so intimately that you have, you've set your love on them. And that's what we find that God has done here, and that's what he did with Abraham, and that's what he did with the nation of Israel. And if you're in Christ... That's what he did for you. It's incredible that you, like me, you were running away from God. You had no real interest in knowing him, no real interest in being like him. And he chased you down like the hound of heaven. He chased you down and he caught you from behind and he turned you around and he just out of sheer grace showered you with love. And that love got inside your heart and his Holy Spirit was given to you as a deposit on your faith and he continued working in you and working in you and even it's brought you here this morning that his love is growing in your mind. It's expanding, it's blossoming. You're coming to see even more about the love of God. And this right here is what really makes God's love silencing. You know that a church or any group of people really is never quieter than when you start talking about love like this. It's what makes it silencing. It's what makes it so fascinating. It's what makes 
the gospel so captivating and exhilarating and heart-satisfying because the kind of love that he's given to us, the kind of covenant that he's brought us into is one that's entirely unmerited. It's the kind of love that even if you wanted to, you couldn't do anything to get it. You couldn't do anything to impress him. You couldn't do anything to to open his fingers so that he would give it to you. He simply gives it to you because he loves you. Now, this is so confusing, and this sounds so crazy because this is not the human way. You don't see this anywhere. You don't see this on television. You don't see this in uh, just like regular secular books about uh, marriage or parenting or love or dating. You don't see any of this. You don't see it in Hollywood. In fact, recently as I was working at my computer, I had running in the background a movie from 2008 with Will Smith. You know who that is? And it's a movie called Seven Pounds. And I don't, well, I'm going to spoil it. But it's been since 2008. So what he does is he's, he's really tormented by some things that happened in his life. And he wants to kind of give his life away. And so he kind of makes a plan to intersect with, with, with seven different people. And he's going to give away vital parts of his body at his death so that they can live on. But here's what's so interesting about the movie. You think, wow, that's so incredible love. That's an amazing sacrifice. Who would do that? But then when you really start to watch the movie and you listen to what he does and how he goes about making sure that he's making the right decision, he asks every person in one way or another one question. Are you a good person? I've got to know that you're a good person before I give you this gift that I have for you. That's why this, when you read it, it just clangs around in your mind because we we have a hard time getting a category for that because that's not the love of God. He doesn't go around saying, I need to make sure I give my gift to the good people because if he did that, he wouldn't find any of them. But rather... He makes a sovereign choice to save from a world of bad people some by grace alone. And you see how quiet it is? It's because this kind of love is silencing. It is incredible. Ask a close friend or a spouse or a child later today, why do you love me? And something awkward is going to happen they're going to start naming off things that they like about you. And then you're going to think about what we talked about today, and you're going to say, whoa, that's really different. You see, because that's not what God does. When you ask why he loves you, he doesn't start naming off things about you. In fact, what he does is something even better. He starts naming off things about him. I love you because I love you, because I am full of grace and mercy. I don't love you because of anything in you. If someone asks you later, why do you love me? That's not a good answer to give. That won't be comforting to my wife if she asks me later, why do you love me? Just because I love you. It's not about you. It's about me. But that is what is so different here about the love of God. 
It's an amazing truth because God chose to set his love on elect Israel as his bride, but then you hear in the very next breath the threat of discipline or the promise of discipline and punishment because of their sin. It's a kind of love that's unlike any other. It's a love that not only chooses to draw them close, but chooses to work on them and change them and satisfy them. The covenant God takes his covenant people utterly seriously. He takes you seriously. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the God of the universe of all the people in the world has chosen by a sheer act of mercy to take you utterly seriously? That he would invade your life and he would control everything going on around you so that it's all crafted according to an incredible purpose to make you just like him. It's the craziest thing in all the world. And it's a little dangerous because that means that along the way, this God who loves you so much is going to hurt you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to hurt me. But he does it for our good. He does it for our glory. And he knows, he knows what he's doing. But that's not all that I want you to see this morning. I also want you to see this, that God's judgment in this passage and all the time does not only spring from sovereign love, but it also falls for a sovereign reason. And that's what comes next in the next few verses. What we see are seven theoretical kind of questions to help paint the picture of just how intentional God is with his people. Sometimes you and I are tempted to think or imagine that maybe God is a little haphazard because it doesn't always add up to us. We, we don't see why certain things are happening or we don't understand why he says this in his word and then the world seems different. But what we find here in these seven rhetorical questions is, is a way of remembering that everything God does is ultimately on purpose. It is for one of his ultimate reasons, and we believe that ultimate reason is to make us like him to his glory, and it's an announcement to the world of just how great and dangerous and safe he really is. So Amos presents seven questions, all illustrating a kind of cause and effect. You can look at your Bible as I read them and see them for yourself. He says this, do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? That seems pretty obvious. No, they don't. They've agreed to meet. They're walking together for a reason. It's intentional. He goes on. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. He roars in the forest once he has his prey, just to make sure everybody knows, I've got the situation under control, and this is mine. Does a young lion growl from his den unless he's captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where there is no device in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? Nope, there's a cause and effect. The bird showed up and the trap sprang. 
If a trumpet is blown in a city, will the people not tremble? If a disaster occurs in a city, has the Lord not brought it about? And the answer to all of those questions is yes, he has. Or yes, there is a bird in the trap. Or yes, the lion has the prey. There's always this reason. Now, it could be, I think, that knowing my own heart as I read this, that Israel would argue that God's judgment was coming without cause. We anticipate that maybe they were caught off guard a little bit about this because they expected, yeah, look at all these other nations around us. They're causing all of this trouble. Go get them. And then all of a sudden, his judging gaze turns to them. And it could be confusing. But Amos is pointing this out, that there is a reason. And the reason is that they, like us many times, still show the remaining sin in our hearts and that we're not exactly like our king quite yet. And therefore, because of his incredible love for us, he's going to discipline us and change us. You see, that's the, that's the false assumption about God that so often springs around in our hearts and minds is that he must be haphazard. He must be willy-nilly kind of making it up as he goes along. But that's not true. In fact, he is inherently, in a way, as far as we can as his creatures, predictable. There's a fly flying around me. He lives by his own perfect and unchanging character. So in this text, knowing who these people are and knowing that we are his people, there's a kind of silver lining around this hard word, punish. And that is that God is intentional all the time, even in these moments, even in the moments when you feel that you're being disciplined, you're being corrected, you're being changed and it's painful. You're going through the growing pains of the Christian life. The silver lining is remembering, I am in God's love. Nothing has changed about his love. In fact, this proof of his love. He's chosen me. He's called me. He saved me. And now he's sanctifying me. He's working on me. And it is a beautiful truth. These are the truths I think that we need more of. We need more vocabulary to understand the kinds of things that God does or the ways that he is in our lives. We don't have enough. There's a mantra among Christians, and in particular, among Baptists, which we are, and it's one of the best things that's happened to us. But it's also one of the worst things that's happened to us. You know what that mantra is. We say it all the time. Sometimes it comes up at the end of a worship service. We're really happy about God, and we're happy about the things he's doing. What do we say? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. One of the best things that's ever happened to us because it's so true. But it's also one of the worst things that's ever happened to us because it has dumbed down our vocabulary about God. When have you ever said, God is intentional all the time, and all the time, God is intentional? When have you ever said that? When have you ever said, God is love 
All the time. And all the time, God is love. God is sovereign. All the, We don't do that because our vocabulary has faded away. We just got stuck with one great, but just one word. But we need these other words. We need to see from texts like this that he's not just good. He's reliable. He's true. He's fair. He's, in a way, predictable. He's wise. He's faithful. He's compassionate. Christians long ago, before our vocabulary drifted away, understood this. And that's why in some of the historic documents that we really cling to and we memorize and we use at home and in our church, they seem so much more rich and full than some of the things that we say and read today. One is just this. You might be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, just a series of questions and answers about God to help us remember who he is and who we are in him and listen to the way it answers the question, what is God? Now, if we answer that today, we say, he's good all the time and all the time God is good. But that's not what they said. Listen to this. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, that's a mouthful. We wouldn't say that at the end of our services takes too long. But we should. We should say it in our lives. This is something that we need, is it not? We need better vocabulary. In the day in and day out, when we have conflict with people at work, or the baby's not sleeping, or we are having trouble in the neighborhood, or the finances are running thin, what do we need? We need more words. We need more ways to call out upon that God and to comfort our hearts with the truth of his dangerous love. And that's what these kind of words do. So let me challenge you as a way of putting this text to use in your life this week and in the weeks to come, and we'll, we'll do this together in community group this week and going forward. Let's start thinking more carefully about the words that we have and make our dictionary thicker. Not thin, thicker. And the best way that we can do that is by being submerged in the word of God together so that we're reading about him, we're looking at him, we're praying to him, we're, we're asking him to give us wisdom as we read these words and we learn more things about him and to remember all of these things that he is. And in fact, yes, he is also incredibly, sovereignly, dangerously good. He's been so good to us. We have every reason to drown ourselves in the truth of his character and his nature and his love. Finally, before we come to a close of this time and then we're able to pray for the Redemption Hill Church Plant team as we launch them out and celebrate the great things that God is doing, I want you to see this, that God's judgment, it springs from sovereign love. We saw that. It also falls for sovereign reasons. But last, it moves with what I see in this text as sovereign hope. Now that may be 
confounding to us, that may be confusing to us because it sure seems dark. I will punish you for all your wrongdoing. Hmm. But I think here we have sovereign hope. I think that the discipline of God in your life and mine is bathed, it's surrounded, it's enveloped in hope. It is delivering hope. And we see that shadowed a bit here. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Certainly the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. Boil that down. He's saying, surely God doesn't do anything without a sovereign plan that he's revealing to his prophets as his mouthpieces to bring that plan about. He says in verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord, God has spoken, who can do anything but prophesy? Buried in this prophecy is hope. It is hope that God is at work in his people and he's not left them simply to judgment, but because of his eternal promises, even cast upon them in eternity past of his election of them and his saving of them and his carrying out his purposes, even here his prophecy carries the hope of his ongoing unfolding plan down through the ages. So there is a kind of shift here as we're reminded that there is a prophet and he is announcing to the people of God this warning and caution, but we know that this God is not done with them. He's not done with us. And this is what prophets are. Prophets are people chosen by God and they're people that serve as his mouthpieces. They speak for him. He reveals the truth to them and they speak or they write it down. That's how we've gotten much of the Bible. And Amos delivers this message with certainty. Just as it's certain why this is happening, it's certain about his prophecy. He feels when he hears this, who could do anything when they have heard this lion roar but to tell the people? Who could do anything else? Well, the answer, I think, to that, the only person who couldn't prophesy is the person who didn't want God's plans to be fulfilled, or for some reason didn't like God's plans. I think about just these few words from Amos, who can do anything but prophesy? And I immediately think of one prophet who did something other than prophesy. You remember Jonah. You remember that when Jonah was told to go prophesy to the evil Ninevites, that he wasn't very excited about that because he didn't want the plan of God for their repentance and for their salvation to occur. And so he hopped on a ship 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. But not here, not here. Here, Amos says, who can do anything but prophesy? He is announcing this word of God who has a plan for his people we actually will see that come up again later in this book of Amos, and we can glance at it quickly this morning. Another prophecy is coming later, and it's in chapter 9, verse 11. He says, On that day I will raise up the fallen shelter of David and wall up its gaps. You've heard about all these walls coming down, citadels falling. 
and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. We see another picture here of God's incredible love and commitment. This is why we talk about God as a covenant God. When he brings you into his covenant, there's no escape. You can't get out, and he is not going to kick you out because he has a plan. We may not always understand that plan as it unfolds, but we know this God who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, wise, good, and all the rest that he is fulfilling his plans. Therefore, Amos certainly can do nothing but prophesy when the lion roars. And what is our prayer when such prophecies come? What is our prayer? What is your hope when you read an unfolding story like this and you hear the promise of punishment for all their wrongdoing and yet the love of God superseding all of it? What is your prayer? It ought to be what is our prayer for the whole world. That, oh, world, would you come? Would you repent? Would you come to Christ? Look at him. Look at how glorious he is. He's full of, of grace and mercy for sinners like us. Won't you hear his good news? Won't you come? Oh God, won't you bring them? Those are our prayers for the world. And that, in fact, is also what is driving us as a church out into the world. It's those kinds of prayers. It's this dangerous love that has driven us to raise up by God's grace and power alone and send people to the far reaches of the world, around the world. And we want to keep doing that, even to send people right across the town, which is what we're looking forward to doing next week. As Redemption Hill Church Plant will begin a real work of, of God that's been going on and has come to this important moment. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time praying for this team on the last Sunday that they're here with us regularly on Sunday morning. And so we want you to have a picture of what this is all about, what the love of God compels us to do. It compels us to go. It compels us to preach. It compels us to share the gospel in the grocery store and down the street and at work and everywhere that we can because we have become persuaded by this incredible God who loves us in such dangerous and such safe ways. And that's what we are giving him thanks for today. And as we send off this group's...